So it's customary to begin uh, Buddhist teaching by going for refuge to the Three Jewels. Uh, the Three Jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And uh, to go for refuge means that we are recognizing the ways in that these things can offer us protection and help as we're struggling with samsara, the cycle of suffering and reactivity and emotionality, uh, which is, according to Buddhist thought, uh, an infinite process with no beginning and no end. And we'll be talking about that more tonight as the topic of this class is the uh, logical proofs for and against rebirth and the um, and more specifically the nature of the mind and how the mind really exists and whether or not re rebirth is possible so we begin by going for refuge to the buddha the buddha was a, a being who uh, was a human being he start, he was born a human and through um, personal development and cultivation and training um, he was able to fundamentally change the way that his mind works and um, was able to break the cycle of suffering and um, become a being who exists outside of time and locality. A being uh, who is able to perceive the entire universe simultaneously as their sense of self. A being who only has correct, valid perceptions, who doesn't have to rely on memory or inference or deduction in order to perceive the truth which is called omniscience. So he, he was able to become a being which had, who had omniscience and infinite compassion. But we go for refuge to Buddha not just because um, Buddha exists or existed in the, in the past 2,000 years ago. We go for refuge to the Buddha because his core teaching was that this is something that's possible for everyone and that it, he wasn't unique in his capacity for enlightenment and that, that all living beings, humans and animals and the other kinds of beings as well, all have at the core of their being the capacity for enlightenment, that it's a, an innate quality of the mind. So we go for refuge to Buddha by realizing that an enlightened being occurred on our planet and that he showed us how to do it ourselves. And we go for refuge to the Dharma, which is the, the set of teachings, the instruction manuals, the, um, the system that was put in that, that uh, Buddha elucidated, that Buddha taught for us, and other, and other uh, realized beings in the subsequent couple of thousands of years. So the, um, the Dharma is like the trail of breadcrumbs left for us to follow, or um, the, the missing manual for how to operate your mind. Um, and the Dharma takes different forms, like the Lam Rim from the Gelugpa Tibetan Buddhist tradition, or the um, Eightfold Path from Theravadan Buddhism. There are different ways of presenting the, the Dharma, the system, but um, they all essentially have the same critical components. And then we go for refuge to the Sangha, which is the community of people who are working for spiritual development along with us. Um, that we are not in it alone, and that we have, uh, we have the support of our community. So that includes us, the people who are here in this room. It includes, of course, the people who, all of the people who practice in this Dharma Center and the people who help run it and help keep the bills paid and everything. Those are all part of our Sangha, people who are supporting our practice, making it possible for us to practice. And it's also that there are many, many spiritual practitioners over the generations who have produced true results from putting the Dharma into practice, and they've written down their thoughts and their commentaries. 
So um, others have put the Buddha's teachings, the Dharma, into practice and had true realizations and they've shared with us what they've learned and, and therefore they're part of our Sangha and they're supporting us as well. The, the second uh, thing that's customary to do before beginning a Buddhist practice or Buddhist teaching is to set the appropriate motivation. And this is um, developing bodhicitta, which is the, um, the absolute devotion to the goal of helping all beings become enlightened as well. Um, there's a, a sort of lesser version of enlightenment that is a personal liberation in which one extinguishes mental afflictions for themselves. So no, no, your, your mind is no longer buffeted about by reactivity and emotionality. Um, but this type of partial enlightenment doesn't last forever because, it, because it's selfish, it is based on re recreating the causes for, the, for that state. And because it's selfish, you can't, you can't effectively do that. Bodhicitta is based on the idea that we have, to want, we have to want it more for others than we want it for ourselves. That's what creates the possibility for the loosening of the ego to be able to actually slip into a state of Buddhahood or awakening. Because if we just want it for ourselves, then we're still trapped in that state of self-cherishing and grasping. And that state of grasping is constrictive and it prevents the letting go, the, the profound letting go that is necessary to achieve deep spiritual states. And so bodhicitta isn't just compassionate. It's not just about wishing that other people could be free from suffering. It's also pragmatic in the sense that we have to want it more for others in order to create the causes to have, it, to have the realizations ourselves. <clears throat> so, we, so with bodhicitta, we're, we're, um, we're trying to set the, a right motivation and also to set aside or um, get rid of bad motivations or negative motivations. And they're not bad in the sense that like you're a naughty boy and girl because you did the wrong thing. They're bad in the sense that they're not effective. If you, without the correct motivation, then the Buddhist practices won't be effective. And so that's why we have to set the, the appropriate motivation in the beginning. So here we are in Dharma Essentials. And we are in a series of classes called the Proof of Future Lives, which is actually about Buddhist logic and correct perception. Um, really, it's, it's called proof of future lives, but it's not proof in the sense of like hard evidence. It's proof in the sense of uh, logical arguments, you know, logical proofs as opposed to like evidence proof, you know. Um, I think that that word meaning both things gets a lot of people tripped up because there's a lot of scientific proof that aren't, that, that aren't proof in the sense of evidence, they're proof in the sense of logical thought experiments that have internal, that have intrinsic coherence, you know what I mean? So that's what we're working with here, really, is logic. Learning how to use our mind effectively so that we can reason our way into information that we can't perceive with our own senses. Um, and also, this is a good time to mention that um, Buddhism is not a system of thought that is based on um, hard assertions. My, my role, my goal here is not to tell you what you should think about Buddhism. My role is to 
uh, illustrate and outline the thought experiments that Buddhism, po that Buddhism presents, Buddhist philosophy presents, and then encourage you to do those thought experiments yourself and reason your way to your own conclusions. Because Buddhism doesn't function if you simply have faith that some guy wrote this stuff down a couple hundred years ago and we just take his word for it, you know? Uh, again, it doesn't function that way. Having faith in it doesn't make it work. What makes it work is that you chew on the material, you cook it in your own self, you do the experiments in your own psychic laboratory and come up with your own results. And if you come up with results that disagree, <clears throat> then that gives you an opportunity to explore and investigate more and say, okay, well, why did uh, Kedrup J or Geshe Wangchuk or whoever come up with this conclusion and I'm coming up with this conclusion and how do we work with that? Okay. Um, the texts that we're working with here, and this is my um, s social proof to, to show you that I'm not making this material up. We are um, working with a text called The Jewel of the True Thought which is by Geshe Yeshe Wangchuk, and it is a commentary on a commentary called Commentary on Valid Perception, which was written by Master Dharmakirti, and uh, Dharmakirti's uh, text is considered one of the foundational texts on Buddhist uh, logic. Um, and then also we're going to, it's also based on another um, book from Kedrup J, who is one of the main students of Jetsongkapa, and his text is called Clearing Away Darkness of the Mind About the Seven Books of Valid Perception. Tibetans kind of have these long-winded titles for their texts, very descriptive titles. Um, and uh, there, there's a PDF of this on my website. You can find it also on the Facebook event page, there's a link and you can download it. If you want to do the reading and look at the original source material um, to see if it makes any sense compared with what I'm saying today. Uh, okay, so um, in this class we're stepping into the middle of an argument that um, what's his name, Dharmakirti, is having with his hypothetical opponents the Charavaka school. So um, maybe this is a conversation that actually happened and somebody wrote it down, or maybe Dharmakirti is just playing his own devil's advocate. Because um, the, this uh, Ch Charavaka school is saying that, essentially saying that there's no way that practicing the practicing dharma, meditation, compassion, wisdom can lead to enlightenment because when the body dies, the mind dies. And therefore, there's nothing to continue beyond uh, to get enlightened eventually. Um, their arguments are based on three main assertions as to why the body dies when the mind dies. <clears throat> and they all essentially have the same core argumentation, but there are three aspects to the argument. And the three aspects are the mind is a quality of the body, the mind is dependent on the body, and the mind is a result of the body. So when they say the mind is a quality of the body, they're talking about the, this is sort of the same argument, actually it's funny that this is, you know, a text that's hundreds of years old because we have essentially the same arguments in the modern world today. The 
The mind is a quality of the body, meaning that that what we think of as myself, my qualia, my, my subjective, deeply personal reality, is merely a byproduct of a sufficiently sophisticated nervous system that evolved through random, random mutations over time. The, that the mind can be reduced to uh, a description of electrochemical reactions within a nervous endocrine system. And I, I find it fascinating, actually, that these are the arguments that are presented, because these, we're still having that same conversation in the modern scientific community today, where neuroscience is having huge breakthroughs in neural imaging and seeing which parts of the brain light up and when, based on what kinds of stimuli, and they're learning a lot about PTSD and the way that traumatic memories are stored and the way that emotions affect different parts of the brain. And the predominant feeling is that at some point we're going to find uh, a, a purely physical description of how the brain works. That it's the, that the, of, of how the mind works, excuse me. That we'll, try, we'll find a purely physical explanation of how the mind works that that the, all the aspects of the mind can be traced to specific activities within the brain and, and importantly, therefore, that's what the mind is. The mind is these biochemical reactions that we can monitor with an fMRI or one of these other different types of magnetic or proton scanners and stuff like that. The, um, the second is that the mind is dependent on the body. This is the, this, the again, these all work together. The, they're not three different proofs, they're three different aspects of the same proof. So the mind is dependent on the body, meaning that because of these biochemical reactions, the mind arises from these biochemical reactions, and therefore, when the biochemical reactions cease to occur, so the mind also ceases to occur. It's dependent upon the functioning of the, of the body. The third is that the mind is a result of the body, and this is when we start to get into Buddhist metaphysics a little bit. Maybe a lot. Um, because result means something very specific here. Um, in, uh, in causality, Buddhist causality is beyond just what we what we are used to thinking of as causality in our culture. In in our culture, we're used to causality being what in Buddhism is called material causality, which is not the whole enchilada. It's not the it's not the entirety of causality. Um, material causality. Material causality is like the the car runs because we put gas in the tank. And if we have the key to the car and the gas is in the tank and the car's not malfunctioning, then when we turn the key, the car starts and we can get to our destination. And, it, and, uh, <clears throat> and that's all true. That's accurate. I'm not trying to refute that. But in uh, Buddhist causality, which is called karma, um, there are multiple more layers that lead to um, phenomena happening in a particular type of way. And this is why... This is... This is, begins to be how Buddhist thought refutes the materialist thought. Because the materialist thought is, is pretty compelling, especially in the modern day 
with uh, neural imaging techniques. But Buddhism is saying you've got it totally backwards. That the mind isn't a byproduct of or an extension of or um, an aspect of the brain, but rather the brain and the mind are, are fundamentally different types of substance that somehow coexist and enmesh one another and, and co-create one another. So when they're saying the mind is the result of the body, what they're saying is that mind stuff can be created by physical stuff. Um, and again, you can see how all of these work together. Like mind is a quality of the body, means we have a, 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 an advanced nervous system that's capable of producing qualia, and the mind is the result of the body is saying that actually the physical body is what causes the qualia. But Buddhism would say that that doesn't fit in the world of material cause because you can't have mind stuff, which is transparent, ineffable, does not have a physical location. Um, you can't say that something insubstantial like that was created by something physically, physical and substantial like matter. So that's kind of the core of the argument is what is the material cause for the mind? And what we come down to is what is the, what is the material cause for the first moment of mind in this life? And in Buddhist biology, they say the first moment of consciousness is when the, the zygote is formed. As soon as the sperm and the egg merge and then the zygote is formed, that's the moment at which the consciousness is incarnated. Um, and some people say maybe it takes a couple of months. There are differences of opinion of exactly when uh, a fetus becomes conscious, but that's kind of beside the point. Whatever the, the point is that that first moment of consciousness in the fetus had to come from somewhere. And the materialists say that that came from a certain level of, de of development in their gestation, that the mind is an extension of the body and that the physical body is what creates the immaterial mind. Now, we come back to Dharmakirti and his refutations. And again, I remind you that these are thought experiments, not things I'm necessarily trying to convince you to believe. So uh, the first of these is that at the moment of birth, the, the, the baby with their first breath, they um, immediately display certain characteristics and certain behaviors. And you, I, I'm not a parent, but I've been told by parents that, um, including my own parents, that um, children are born with their personalities basically intact. And that the kind of person that I am today um, my, my, my mom recognizes that person in the infant that I was 30, 30 years ago, 30 something years ago. And, uh, and likewise, my brother, she's like, he was always this way and you were always this way. And now we're th in our thirties and like those basic personality characteristics are still there. Um, and uh, so Dharmakirti is saying 
those proclivities had to come from somewhere. They didn't come from nowhere. They couldn't, ha they couldn't be, a, a baby couldn't be born with, a, with more or less a personality intact um, if the mind was merely a, a byproduct of the, of the body. say about that. Oh, he, he also says that the fact that a baby is agitated as soon as they're born is evidence of samsara. That basically we're born stressed out and suffering and that that is a inherent characteristic of, uh, of a samsaric life, of a, of a being who is not a Buddha. And so he Dharmakirti then uses these as evidence that um, the, the, mind, the mind couldn't be part of the baby because the mind has all of these qualities and characteristics that had to come from somewhere. His next refutation is that, and, and now we're, again we're getting into Buddhist metaphysics, so bear with me if this is puzzling. Um, we have to figure it out for ourselves. <laughs> um, the cause of the child's first moment of consciousness had to be itself a changing thing or an unchanging thing. Now when we're talking about changing things and unchanging things, we're talking about Buddhist metaphysics, where changing things have causes. Um, to say that a thing has a cause means to say that it's changing. The causes are changing, and so the things are changing. There is something that caused the subsequent thing, and in the process, the original thing was ceased to exist in order to create the new thing. So when he asks the question, was the, was the cause of the first moment of consciousness a changing thing or an unchanging thing, in Buddhist rhetoric, that's an absurd question. For something to have caused something else, it is by definition a changing thing. So he's kind of trying to argue his opponent into a corner where, this is popular in Tibetan debate especially, where you, you persuade and persuade and persuade your opponent to agree with some assertion, and then when they agree, you then uh, hit them with all the refutations. You say, well, you agreed to this, and so here's all the things that prove you're wrong. But it's a, it's a tricky technique because you like you lead your opponent where you want him to go into, and then you like ah sprung the trap, got you. So when he says is it changing or unchanging, he's kind of doing that. He's maneuvering his opponent where he wants him to be because of course the first moment of consciousness had to be caused, and the thing that caused it had to be a changing thing. This, this is essential to how reality is functioning. So therefore, if it's a changing thing. The changing thing itself had to have a cause. The cause of the first moment of consciousness had to have a cause. The, the result of the first moment of consciousness had to have a cause. That cause had to have a cause. That cause had to have a cause. So when they say, so, okay, let's, let's continue. That's enough for now because it'll, all of the arguments start to put together to create a whole, you know? So then his next refutation is, is the mind contained within physical matter or is it outside of physical matter? And I'll give you a spoiler, he disproves both of the possibilities. <laughs> um, 
is the mind part of physical matter? Then you could say, if you say yes, the mind is part of physical matter, then you have two questions. Okay, um, is it the result? It, if it's a physical thing, is it a singular thing or is it comprised of parts? And so let's say it's a singular thing. The brain is what causes the mind, let's say. Or let's just say the whole nervous system, right? Let's, let's just be generous and say it's distributed throughout the whole body. And say, okay, it's, it is contained within the physical thing. And so the counter argument then is, if the mind is contained in the body and the, and the body is a whole, W-H-O-L-E, a whole thing, then if you removed any part of the body, the mind would cease to function. If you removed a pinky finger or an organ, then you would no longer have the whole and therefore the mind wouldn't function. We can disprove this. We know people who have surgeries or injuries or uh, accidents and their physical body changes. And the way that their mind works changes, but the mindness the mind itself is not damaged by changes to the physical body. So then we say, okay, well then let's not, let's not say it's the whole. Let's say that it's all of the parts working together. And so now Dharmakirti's refutation for that argument is that if it's, all, if it's a collection of parts, then you would have to say that each part had all of the characteristics of the mind in it. And therefore, you would say each one of your brain cells, or, or even each one of the atoms in each one of your brain cells, would have to be its own distinct mind, and you would have as many minds as you had parts. So if it's a whole, it can't be a whole, because if you remove a part, the whole ceases to be the whole, but it can't be a collection of parts, because if it's a collection of parts, then each of the parts has to have all of the characteristics. Now, I'm, we can think of counter-arguments for this, but we're just going along with Dharmakirti's rhetoric for now. Uh, again, this was written at a time before they had neural imaging, and there's a lot of evidence now for the mind as an aspect of the nervous system. There's a lot more evidence now than there was at Dharmakirti's time, and it's a lot harder to argue against because the, the scientific establishment has a kind of a chokehold on cultural discourse, you know, and, and if you, anyway, I don't want to go down that road, it's a little tricky, it's a slippery slope, slippery slope. Actually, no, I want to say one other thing about it, because, <laughs> because um, the scientific worldview is that science is rational, and that spiritual stuff is somehow not rational, and that is bullshit. That's not the case. Um, and, and before modern science, actually much of the cutting edge research and philosophy was done within the theological realm. And there are major breakthroughs in physicalist science that were developed by uh, monks, Christian monks. And so this idea that science is rational um, and not based on faith and that spirituality is irrational and is based entirely on faith is a dogma of the, the, the dominant scientific worldview that is not 
that is not validated by the evidence. But it's a great, it's a great technique to put um, philosophy and theology and ontology, you know, the, the study uh, epistemology, the study of how the mind is working on a fundamental level. It's a good way to put, to, uh, put that, those modalities on the defensive by saying, oh, that's faith-based, that's just, you just believe in all of that stuff, and because it's philosophy, you can't really quantify it. But that um, is actually a really big question, and science can't pin down what consciousness is. Neuroscience is like they're they're confident that there's gonna be, that they're gonna prove that there's a physical cause to the mind, but they can't find it. And physics is fairly confident that they're not going to find um, consciousness in the substratum of the universe, but that's quite what quantum mechanics is pointing towards, you know, with the Schrodinger's cat and the dual slit experiment and so on. Physics is quite, quite strongly pointing in the direction that perception and awareness is what causes the field of infinite energy to coalesce into particular phenomena. So even within physics, it's, it's putting uh, materialist science uh, kind of getting it to backpedal a little bit. Anyway. Okay, so according to Dharmakirti, we've established that the, the, the mind, that there's some mind that is uh, in a newborn child, the first instantiation of consciousness in that particular physical body has characteristics which indicate that it has to have previous causes. We've established that those causes can't be physical because um, you can't have mind stuff coming from physical stuff. And we've demonstrated that it can't be part of physical matter because of the one or many thought experiment. Is it a whole or is it parts? If it's a whole, it, 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 you can't remove part and it'll cease to function. But if it's made of parts, then you have lots of things instead of one thing ad infinitum. Um, so now he's saying, okay, so mind is mind stuff. Mind is not physical stuff, mind is mind stuff. So let's look at possible ways that the mind could be created from other mind stuff. And his first assertion is that mind comes from the mind of someone else, specifically your parents, that you are basically a cookie cutter replication of the merged minds of your parents. Um, Dharmakirti, he, he, he refutes his own arguments a lot of time, too. <laughs> this guy is a bit of a cyclical argument kind of guy, which I can appreciate. He says that's not the case, because if it were, then you would have the same skills and, and mind, uh, qualities of mind as your parents do. And so you wouldn't have, for example, a carpenter whose son is, uh, has no, you know, um, physical labor skills. They're like, say they're really bad with their hands. And you wouldn't have somebody who's a moron produce a child who is a savant or has, you, you wouldn't be able to produce a child that had talents and skills that were different from the parents if the mind was uh, coming from the parents. So Dharmakirti is just trying to be very thorough here and explore all of the possible explanations. So here we come to more or less to his conclusion, which is that the, the result of a cause must resemble the, re, must resemble the cause and come 
after the cause. So he's summing up his arguments by saying that mind stuff comes from mind stuff, not from physical stuff. It can't come from the minds of your parents because we can see that children don't have the same characteristics of their parents. We know that that first moment of mind must be caused by something similar to it, e.g. IE, for example. I get EG and IE confused sometimes. They mean different things. Um, your mind, the, the first moment of mind in this particular body had to come from a previous moment of mind. It can't be physical, it has to be mind. It's not coming from the parent's mind. Therefore, your mind must have had a moment of mind prior to your first moment of consciousness in this body, it's the only way that you could have, uh, it's the only way that the mind could be caused to, uh, that's the only way that the first moment of mind could be caused, and therefore it means that mind existed before the first moment of consciousness in this body, and according to Dharmakirti, you've opened Pandora's box and this is the, the proof for past and future lives. Because if you can prove, we've proved logically, again, I'm using the word proof as a, um, logical proof, not as hard evidence, because we have to reason our way through it. Nothing, nothing I've said here is evident. None of this is self-evident. The materialist explanations are more self-evident than the Buddhist refutations for them. So we're, the onus is on us to try to puzzle this stuff out. But Dharmakirti has, according to his logic, proven that, there, that your mind had a moment of consciousness prior to the first moment of consciousness in this body, and therefore, mind cannot be uh, caused by the body or dependent on the body or is a quality of the body. Therefore, your mind goes backwards due to the logic of causality infinitely. And therefore, we've also proven future lives as well. That's what Dharmakirti says. <clears throat> so, um, just in conclusion, um, and to reiterate that the the reason that we go through this material is to help us have a solid enough understanding that we can go into meditation and, and have a serious meditation practice, go into retreat, and we already have studied and learned the logic and the arguments for all of the protests that our mind is going to come up with as to why we should not be bothering to meditate and we should not be bothering to go into retreat and we should just go to the bar and have a beer and watch TV and get laid or whatever. Um, the mind, the, the, in this case it's not the mind, it's the, um, the ego, according to using Freudian terminology, or the ahamkar in Sanskrit, which means the I maker the eye uh, uh, maker, um, or in Buddhist 
lexicon the persistent self-identification habit um, is driven by getting its own needs met, which is craving, grasping, uh, craving and aversion. Either uh, that looks good, I think it can make me happy, I'm going to get more of that, or that looks bad, it's going to make me unhappy, I've got to get rid of it. And both, both of those are based on the idea that I can, I can achieve happiness and contentment and stability by micromanaging the universe to protect myself from getting my feelings hurt or something like that, you know? And, um, and we can't, that's impossible. We can't get all of the pieces arranged in just the right fashion. We can't get the, the scales just perfectly balanced and then keep it there forever. Um, the mind has us chasing our tail looking for temporary sensory fulfillment in order to try to plug that sense of lack or that sense of things aren't right here. And, the, and, and, the, and so the mind doesn't want to study emptiness. It doesn't want to study logic. It doesn't want to... The ahamkar doesn't want to go through exercises in which you're trying to prove to it that it doesn't exist. Because its whole thing is, look at me, I'm the, I'm the star of the show, you know? <laughs> It's a diva, basically. Your ego's a diva. And it's wrong about its, you know, value to the world, so to say. Um, and so it creates a lot of protests. And we study logic, uh, the three principal paths and the eightfold path, because we need to learn all of the arguments that our mind is going to have so, and, and know what the refutations are. And, and then the whole purpose of that the whole reason we bother with all of this logic stuff is so that we can then go into meditation and actually achieve deep states of meditation because the mind will naturally be agitated during meditation and it's not so effective to just say, shut up. I'm, I don't want to talk to you right now, mind, me. I don't want to talk to you right now, self. Um, you have to, whenever it says, we don't want to do this because you say, oh yeah, but here's, here's why you're wrong and here's the counter argument, and here's why it's still valid. So, I personally find this material right here, the proof of past and future lives, to be really difficult to wrap my head around. We don't have any memory of past lives. We don't have any, there's no hard evidence that we can possibly come up with to prove it to ourselves. But having intelligent faith that past and future lives are a real thing is a critical component to understanding samsara and understanding samsara is a critical component to developing renunciation, which is the desire to get out of samsara. And the, having the desire to get out of samsara is what gets us the motivation to practice and to sit down and learn to meditate and to develop compassion and wisdom. So, now you have some new tools that you can use in meditation when your mind starts rolling its eyes, when your ego starts rolling its eyes about trying to create the karma for a favorable rebirth. Now it's customary at the end of a Buddhist practice or Buddhist teaching to dedicate the merit 
Um, as I was talking about in the beginning with bodhicitta and the right motivation, if we, if we, we're, we generate um, positive momentum, uh, positive mental states by studying and contemplating these things and carving out the time, really, even just, you know, coming to the Dharma Center on Thursday night instead of going to the bar or staying at home and watching Netflix is pretty awesome good karma all by itself. <laughs> just showing up is a big deal. Um, because you're, show, you know, you're telling yourself that it matters. Um, you're kind of putting the stake in the sand and saying, this is more important to me right now. And according to Buddhist metaphysics, that, that has power. And we can use that power to accelerate our spiritual growth. But not if we hoard it and have like this golem like, I've got this merit, my good karma, I've got this like secret stash underground where I like hide all my good karma so nobody will steal it from me. That nullifies the good karma. It ceases to be good karma when that's the motivation. The only, the way to strengthen the good karma is to imagine that you can multiply it and plant those karmic seeds in everybody else's heart. And so that's how we dedicate the merit it's sort of a, a sweet visualization for helping to develop compassion and bodhicitta. So as we wrap up the conversation, or monversation, I guess, uh, monologue, um, we imagine that the good karma that we've generated can be replicated and distributed, and these great seeds can be planted in the hearts of countless beings. And in that way, we expand and multiply the good karma so that it can, that it can really help, uh, help us on our spiritual path. <laughs>